The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine, and I have a very special guest, Ira Israel, on the line. He's going to join us in just a little bit. I want to tell you about him. He is a psychotherapist, licensed professional clinical counselor, licensed marriage and family therapist, certified yoga therapist, and he has a Master of Arts in uh, Psychology, Physiology, and Buddhism and Hinduism. He's the author of Mindfulness for Urban Depression and yoga for depression and anxiety. And I thought Ira would be a great guest because because the theme of this show is get the funk out. Mindfulness is a very important component we should all have in our lives. So he'll be joining us in just a little bit. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I have to share that uh, I have to be upfront with the listeners that I've known you quite a long time. I remember meeting you when I was 14 <laughs> in that guitar store, Play It Again Sam's. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was a cool thing. Has music always been one of your loves? Yes. Um, it's, it's a funny thing to me um, because I, I, yeah, I relate it to everything that I'm doing now because I work with a lot of musicians still, and I've always been fascinated, I'm sure we'll get into this more later, but, um, like, where songs come from. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, completely. So, like, how people get inspired and how people, um, you know, it's very, it's a very interesting um, philosophical uh, idea for me. So, anyways, but we can chat about that later. Absolutely. I mean, music is so cathartic on so many different levels, so. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your background, how you gravitated toward the field you're in. Well, let's see. Um, a long time ago, 27 years ago, I was in a car accident. And um, for some reason, like um, a lot of people, I guess, I started to ask existential questions. And so I started to study um, psychology and sociology. And I just got really um, intrigued by how people in different parts of the world found meaning in their lives. And so I ended up... Um, going for a master's degree in philosophy, and then uh, I lived in New York for a little bit, but for some reason Paris was calling me, and um, I went there for some time, and I just, it, there's a great quote that from Marshall McEwen that um, I always use when I start my workshops, and he says, um, I don't know who discovered water, but I doubt it was a fish. <laughs> Interesting. And for me, those three years in Paris really enabled 
me to get uh, another perspective on America and all the things that we consider to be completely normal, like one-hour lunches or driving to work or telephones, whatever, you know, all the things that we consider to be normal, seeing it from another perspective, you know, it it really um, opened up my way of thinking. And then towards the end of those three years, I ended up in Thailand, and um, I got really interested in um, Buddhism and Hinduism because I I was hurt there. Um, And a woman... What happened? uh, What happened there? I, I, it's funny because I went there with a friend of mine and we were, we were partying, you know, we were, as one does when one's in their twenties in in, in Thailand. And so I walked into a door because I'm (sighs) six feet tall. I I walk and I clipped my head on a, at full gate, uh, on the rim of a door. And it was Koh Samui in 1994 and there were no hospitals on the island. Oh my gosh. And we stumbled into this place and this, I was falling asleep at the, at the lunch table, and this woman said, what happened to you? And I told her, and she said, let me heal you. And, you know, I started to laugh, and then my friend said, no, 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 I want to see her heal you. Okay. So she put me down on this table, and she started to move her hands uh, over me, mm-hmm. and she started to tell me things about my life and my relationships, and she, she never touched me, she just, but she found the wound, and um, I could see, after about 20 minutes, sweat beating on her lip. And then a little bit later, she said, okay, it shut off. And I said, Whoa. what shut off? And I, I, she said, the energy. And I touched this very um, sensitive wound uh, on my head, and it was gone. You're kidding me. No. Oof. Is and, that, uh, is, excuse yeah. me, is that Reiki? Is that, they call yeah. it Reiki? It was, okay. Yeah, yeah. And okay. so she ended up, um, then she scanned my whole body. She told me all these things that she couldn't know uh, about me. And she said, you really need to, um, to clean yourself out. So I did a, an eight-day fast at this place. It's very popular now, but this was back in 94 where it, was in, where it wasn't that she uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, go to Thailand and do the things that one does for those eight to ten days. Yes. Um, <laughs> So um, I did that, but it really sparked my interest in uh, in just the East and mm-hmm. the way they saw, uh, you know, life and what we're doing on this planet and relationships and things like that. And um, I came back to New York and I went to film school, and then I ended up in L.A. making a couple of movies, but I got really, really into yoga. Oh. And... Um, I kind of wanted to make sure I wasn't joining a cult or something because I just didn't, I just didn't get it. And my way of making sure I'm not joining a cult is to get a next, another master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to UCSB and I studied um, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Kabbalah um, for a little bit and got more to yoga. And then I, then you know, I things happened. I ended up back in New York. I, I was in Paris and back then back in LA. And I got really into uh, psychology, and um, and I also kind of found after 25 years what I've been looking for, which was the meaning of life. Let's say to me, okay. and um, I mean, I just tell people what I think it is, and um, and it's very different from what uh, most Americans would imagine. I, I think, but I've been on a plane sitting next to. Um, like high-powered diplomats and telling them what I do and they tell me what they do and I tell right. people like what you know what the meaning of life is 
And they're like, and they, they sit there and they're like, yeah, you're right. And it, it, but it, it seems counterintuitive. But anyway, I'll just tell you. I mean, um, wait, wait, me, t- time out. Are you going to share with me the meaning of life according yeah. to Ira Israel? Good. Go for it. Being a service to others. Being a service to others. That's it. You don't want anything else on your tombstone besides, you know, beloved, helped others. Mm-hmm. All the things that we were taught about the American dream like owning property and doing this and being successful. None of those things matter at the end of the day. The only thing that matters is, you know, putting a smile on someone else's face, helping them through a tough time, mm-hmm. um, you know, just really serving others. That's it. Is it also being compassionate? Is that part yeah. of it? So, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and that's really interesting to me because the competitive nature of our spirit has, like, kind of squashed empathy uh, out of out of us as a culture. Like, we're mm-hmm. not really, um, I mean, we consider it to be empathetic if we, like, write a check to, you know, some organization at Christmas time, and then they go do something with it. Right. But, I mean, really, like, sitting there with another human being and helping them through a hard time, which could be, you know, it could be your kid, mm-hmm. or it could be the, you know, the... Uh, blind person on the corner who you, you know, help cross the street. But really, um, there's been um, just uh, um, something's gone on uh, in, the, in America in the past 50 years or so, so where I, I, I think it's because of the, the enormous supply of everything outweighs the demand and it's become yes. so hyper-competitive yes. that we've really lost um, empathy for our fellow human beings, and we don't we don't look at situations like when you go into a store or you're, you're trying to hire somebody. Nobody looks at each other that they say and says, "How can we make this a win-win situation?" Mm-hmm. It's always like I'm trying to maximize profit and growth, and like you know, I don't really. I'm therefore I'm not really concerned about you. You know, your your well-being. Right. So it's so that's why I mean. Being of service to others uh, is the meaning of life, and it's really hard because we have expectations. Like, we all want to be, you know, um, helped and, and served and things like that. So right. to be able to, you know, release your ego and just be there for another human being, hold space for somebody, um, I find really rewarding. And the other things that, you know... Um, People would say, you know, that's the meaning of life. I don't, I, you know, are not compelling to me. But you know what? Um, you said it very simply, but there's a lot to it. Yeah. You know, if more people helped other people without wanting some monetary reward or some fame or some whatever, we'd have a better world. I totally agree. I mean, this is the way I see it, and this is going to be incredibly offensive to a lot of people, but. Um, you know, Bill Gates, when he was named um, Man of the Year and put on Time magazine, um, you know, that 32 or $36 billion, um, he earned because of his style of um, making 92% of the cube computers in the world have Windows as their operating system, and then that cost was passed on to the consumers, I think it was about $116 or $119 for a computer, per okay. computer, that you, and you had no choice in the matter. Um, yes. And it, mm-hmm. it, you know, so it's, like, it's a very interesting thing to watch one person amass that amount of money where, uh, and be named man of the year when he starts giving it away, 
where if, if I started a general store and I said, and this is like, and I know people are going to say, oh, Ira, you're a socialist. I, you know, I don't care. Um, but if, if I say, okay, well, 5% of all of our profits goes to, you know, these people and 10% goes to health insurance and let's make, let's make this fair for everyone. Because in America, that, uh, the average CEO still earns, I think it's like 400% um, more than their workers. Oh, it's insane. So that's what I'm saying is a lack of empathy. I mean, and a lack of empathy, you know, that's the definition of sociopath. So it's like somebody who walks by their worker in their factory and they know that they've just earned $36 million and that worker uh, can't, can't pay their rent that month. Um, that, that to me, you know, is a profound lack of empathy. Right. No, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. So tell me about what, how you, you know, you've, it seems like you've kind of layered your career based on different experiences, you, you know, um, psychology and yoga. Where are you now right now? What are you doing? Um, it's funny because it all seems like <clears throat> extremely organic and natural the way everything happened and the way everything came together a couple of years ago. So I have these three master's degrees, one in philosophy, one in um, Buddhism, Hinduism, Kabbalah, and one in psychology. And I also went to film school. And I was teaching yoga at Rodney Yee's studio in uh, Piedmont, mm -hmm. and a woman came into my class, and I, I saw the way she put the fleshy part between her thumb and forefinger on the mat, and I literally walked over to her, I didn't know her, and I whispered, I have to make a DVD with you. And what? I don't I know, I know, it's insane. And um, that's quite and, the pickup line. No, I'm just kidding. It, 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 no, 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 it's very, very interesting how it okay. happened because I, I had no intention of doing that. Right. And I just saw there was a, there's a certain way sure. that I can't, it's very difficult to explain. Um, but it's, it's hard to have your hands on the ground and your shoulder blades splayed at the same time because your, your arms, you know. And she had obviously. Um, been practicing for a long time, and there was just something. It's funny because she's a very petite woman, and if you saw her on the street, you would, you know, she wouldn't notice her at all. But there was something about the way she looked um, doing the poses that I knew she would look good on film. Okay, all right. And so, um, so we talked after class, and I put an ad on an ad on Craigslist, and I hired a film crew. And um, I, I knew what I was doing uh, when I licensed the music from Snatnam Kaur, who's a very famous um, Kundalini uh, teacher and singer. And I, and I put it all together. And so I became, you know, um, a, a yoga instructor and a certified yoga therapist. Nice. And I was also have this um, other legitimacy because at the same time I was going for my licensure as a psychotherapist. So it's kind of an interesting mix of, um, of Eastern um, philosophies and spirituality and then applying that to um, the Western uh, paradigm of, of disease. Uh, I think you watched my DVD. I did. Uh, I did. It was very interesting about urban depression. And yeah. It's, you know, we, we don't really put our finger on what's going on with us and why we are the way we are, but it was very moving. 
You want to talk, well, talk a yeah, little bit please. about that? Well, I'll go back to that quote. I, I don't know who discovered water, but I doubt it was a fish. And, you know, most people buy into a system of beliefs without questioning it. So, you're, you, you know, you say, I don't like going to work. Or, or here's my perfect, perfect example. I, I treat a lot of um, young people. And it's bizarre because they know at 14 or 15 years old that if they go into a doctor's office and they say, I find myself looking out the window a lot, uh-huh. they'll get a prescription for Ritalin or Focalin like within 30 seconds. Because that's, that's, that's scary. Like a key, that's a key, <laughs> and they can sell those drugs. <clears throat> there was an article on the cover of New York Times about this three weeks ago. So um, there are certain, you know, if you say, I don't like showing, I don't like, I don't like, um, you know, I, in the afternoon I feel really lethargic and I can't do this. And, and you describe a couple of these symptoms, you can get a, a diagnosed for depression uh, very quickly but, and get on to uh, some kind of medication. Okay, but back up a second. I could get super lethargic if I ate too much bread in the afternoon and want to fall asleep. I mean... I, yeah, if you have pasta for lunch, oh, around 5 it. o'clock, you'll want to take a nap. And I remember looking out the window a lot, being at I work, know. and thinking, this is not for me long term. But right. I, I wasn't depressed. I was just thinking, right. this is not for me. So that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like the, there, was a, there was an article six years ago in the New York Times that 56% of the psychiatrists who wrote the DSM had taken money from the pharmaceutical companies. Ugh. So uh, at some point in time in their careers, they had done research or something. So we're, what I'm interested in is looking at the system. You know, there's yes. a, there's like the, the basic um, uh, parameters of, of health in this country are can you show up at a desk or late or in the mill or drive a car for eight hours a day? And if you can't do that, then we're going to put you on medication so that you can do that. Like, like our barometer of health is productivity. So, I, I, you know, that's fascinating. We're very productive. We're very competitive. But, you know, sometimes at some point in time in your life, after you have made a lot of money or you just get burnt out, you just say to yourself, is this why I'm supposed to be on this planet Earth? You know, to um, you know, there's a, there, I have a lot of friends who, because I went to UPenn in the '80s, um, as I'm sure you have friends, and they are they suffer from the that what's called um, golden handcuffs, meaning that they mm-hmm. they make a lot of money. Uh, I have two friends making quite a, a, a substantial amount of money, and who hated their jobs, but if they if they quit them, they would take uh, they. One of them told me he would get paid in his next job one-tenth of what he gets paid now, and he had a kid and a mortgage, and he couldn't afford to do that. So it's like they, people show up for these jobs that are, as one client said last week, um, mind-numbing, mind-numbing and soul-sucking. <laughs> but, but if you have a mortgage and, you know, um, you've been earning that uh, yearly um, uh, uh, bonus, you're at it. You're making quite a, 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 a nice living, and you can't just say, you know what? I always, I'm 50 years old. I always wanted to do X. I'm going to quit my million dollar a year job and uh, and and you know become a ballerina mm-hmm. you know, or, or whatever. So it's okay. very. We get we the, the way our system is set up in this country is to measure our self of uh, our sense of self worth on these. Ex- Exterior things, right. and and you know when you're hooked into that system, whether it's like 
oh, well, you know, my wife is this, or my father is this, or my car. Yeah, I drive a BMW or whatever it is. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I know, it's sad. Yeah, (laughs) well, you're you're setting yourself up for um, being in a system that's going to... get you onto medication because there's no, there's not, you know, um, uh, lifelong fulfillment or happiness in measuring who you are and what you're doing on this planet Mm -hmm. through, you know, exterior means. I had a roommate uh, after college. Uh, She was one of my good friends' cousin. We ended up in Boston and I didn't really know her. We ended up living together and she was an attorney and it was something she did because that's what she was told she should do. Her parents convinced her, and she was just doing it because that's what she thought the right thing was. And she ended up leaving her big, high-paying job at this law firm, renting a place in Vermont, very remotely, and writing romance novels. Okay? Great. And she, she didn't succeed. I mean, she, you know, she ate a lot, you know, and she slept a lot and and it didn't turn out to be a success but it's something she wanted to do and she went for it and she didn't miss the whole law firm thing and you know the day in day out grind and all the nonsense that goes with it well i wrote a, an article last week called happiness is a choice uh that's on the huffington post and in it i i say that there's two key um like uh what's it called um two key skills or, um, I, don't, I don't know, uh, things that you can um, cultivate that can basically ensure long-term happiness. And, and mm-hmm. this is taken from um, Authentic Happiness, um, or one of them at least, from Martin Seligman's work, and he's also at the University of Pennsylvania. And basically the first one is um, loving relationships. And I specifically say on my DVD that I've never had a patient come into the office and say, um, I feel loved, appreciated, and respected by my family, friends, and coworkers, and I'm depressed. Right. And I, I, so it's, that's very interesting to me because I feel, and it's interesting because my workshops used to be yoga and mindfulness for depression, and I, there was like a stigma of people being depressed, like entering into a room, you know, because then you'd have to you say, why are you here, you know, because I suffer from depression. Mm-hmm. So I spun it to the opposite, yoga and mindfulness for authentic relationships, because there's an inverse, rela- uh, the inverse correlation. You know, you can, I, as I said, I don't think you can have authentic, loving, compassionate relationships and be depressed. Sure. Right. So, I mean, and I'll qualify that for the listeners by saying, as I said on the DVD, we're all grieving. We're all grieving losses all the time. But if you have people who show up in your lives as mirrors and are authentic and compassionate and can allow you to process your emotions, then, you know, you'll get through your grief. Whereas um, if you don't have that, that ability to process the grief, then it, matter, then it turns into depression. And as, as I say on the DVD, the same characteristics, eight of the nine characteristics that for depression are the same as grief, but the only distinction is grief is for 30 days, and then, um, you know, uh, as, if you have the same symptoms after 31 days, now you have depression, clinical depression, and you can be given medication. Mm-hmm. So... Um, okay, so the first, the first thing to cultivate if you want to have a, a meaningful, happy life is authentic, loving relationships, because uh-huh. we're all going to go through trials and traumas, 
and we're going to need to process them. And an American, like, I think we have a very, very um, small bandwidth for emotions. We don't tolerate um, a lot of emotions in, in our, our culture. And then the second thing, as you were just saying about your, your friend who was the attorney, mm-hmm. um, that bodes well for a meaningful, happy life is personal freedom. And, you know, I, I've been with people who feel like they have to go to work and have to do these things. And, and it's, it's very interesting to me because, um, you would think when you reach a certain level, you know, you would say, you know what, I, I don't need another million dollars. I'd rather just go to the beach. Yeah. But I've been with a lot of people who literally say, you know what, they're paying me a million dollars tomorrow. I, I can't say no. Sure. And, and, I, and I literally, <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, actually you can. <laughs> because, because to you a million dollars is what a nickel is to me. You know, like, you want to go to the beach? Let's go to the beach. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or you tell him you'll go instead and you go yeah, to the exactly. beach. <laughs> it's, very, it's very funny. There, there's, um, there's tons of research coming out that, um, you know, money has very little correlation to personal happiness. It's really about the relationships that you cultivate and then the amount of personal freedom you have in your life to explore your sense of wonder, like you were saying, and follow your bliss and, yes. you know, be who you want to be and do the things that fulfill you in this life. Absolutely. Ira, we have to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk more about what exactly mindfulness is in greater detail and some advice you might have for people in a funk to get out of a funk. Sure. All right. Hang tight. Thank you. You've been listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. We'll be back in just a few minutes. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Driving at night can be a difficult task, but if you're tired, sleepy, or fatigued, it can be more than just difficult. It can be deadly. All it takes is a few seconds of sleep at the wheel for you to get into a serious accident. You can hurt yourself or others. If you do need to drive at night, try to get rest beforehand to make sure you have the stamina to drive. Chewing gum or singing along to music can also help keep you awake. You can try to roll down your windows for fresh air if you think that'll help. But if you start to doze off at the wheel, don't take a chance. Find a safe place to pull over and rest until you feel alert to continue, or head back to where you started from and sleep until the morning. It's better to be late than to never arrive. When you're driving at night, make sure to stay sharp. For more information, you can visit dmv.ca.gov and search keyword health safety. Hi, hon. I thought you were coming home early. Yeah. What's the matter? What happened? And I realized today just how much I really love you. What do you mean? I almost got killed today. Oh, my God. I was rushing home to catch the game. There was a train coming. I thought I could beat it. Oh, I, Billy. I was just about to go around the gate. Something made me slam on the brakes. Oh, thank God. I, I coffee went everywhere. I'm so glad you're all right. It wasn't worth the risk. Never see you again. Never smell your hair. I don't even say that. Never see you walk. Oh, I love you. I'm sorry. It takes a mile for a train to stop. 
Don't try to beat a train or someone you love will get hurt. Look, listen, and live. This message brought to you by Operation Lifesaver and this station. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Sometimes I, my parents have to take me to the hospital. Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma, accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room visits. I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. A little whistle sound comes out when I breathe. But while your child may suffer from asthma, asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station. Hi there, I'm your host Janine. You're listening to Get the Funk Out, and this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're joined again with my guest, Ira Israel. We were going to talk about mindfulness and what that means. So mindfulness is a tool or a skill. Um, It's kind of like a muscle, something you develop. And on the one hand, it's the easiest thing in the world, um, being aware of your thoughts, feelings, and actions. And on the other hand, uh, it's the most difficult thing in the world. So there's three things that make mindfulness very difficult. One is you cannot tell the mind what not to think. Yeah. If, I, if I say, close your eyes and don't think of a white elephant. Yeah, impossible. Right. What your mind does is it puts it in and takes it out and mm-hmm. then kind of flips around. So the second reason is that we get our sense of self, our personal identity through our thoughts. And I'll talk about that more in a second because I find our language to be very interesting. Like, I am. Like, the am is an equip, an, a, like an equal sign. So we say things like, I am sad or I am depressed. But mm-hmm. really, if you were precise, you'd say, I am a human being, you know, temporarily experiencing the emotion of sadness. Right? But we don't do that in our culture. We say, I, I, like my core self is right. sad. Yes. So, we ident- so the second problem with mindfulness is that we identify with our thoughts. And the third problem is that our minds have a negativity bias. Most of the thoughts, I mean, we have 50,000 thoughts every day. About 45,000 are the same ones we had yesterday. Um, and most of them are pretty um, critical, judgmental, because we grew up in a way that... Um, I mean, our, our culture is very interesting the way we, we raise children. You know, we, we kind of raise them, uh, if you went to public school, um, the way, we kind of raise children the way we train pets. And again, I know that's kind of Wait, provocative. Elaborate on that. <laughs> well, children, sentient beings, want one thing. They want to be loved unconditionally. Right. And what we do is we uh, love them conditionally, and we teach them that if they want to be loved with smiles and, and to gain our affection, they have to do certain things like stop breastfeeding and start drinking cow's milk, stop going to <laughs> stop defecating in their, in their diapers and learn how to use a toilet. Get up at 7 o'clock in the morning, eat a meal, even if they're not hungry, and then go to school and then, uh, you know, nap when they're not tired, but when it's nap time. Go to the bathroom when they don't have to go to the bathroom, but when it's bathroom time. 
uh, and eat at the, you know, snack, lunch, breakfast, and dinner time, even if they're not hungry. So it's a very interesting thing, the way we train kids, just like we train pets. For um, There's a joke I tell about this in the workshops. There's a, I'm sure most people have heard it. You know, for the first two years of a child's life, everyone's saying, like, talk, like, stand up, talk, everyone, stand up, talk. Mm-hmm. And then for the next 18 years, the only thing you hear is, shut up and sit down. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Interesting. So for me... I talk about America being a resentment factory, like our, we, should net, we should measure our gross national product in terms of the resentment it engenders, because we, we, we make these incredibly productive type A um, people who you know, are, are driven to success and do incredibly wonderful things, but on the inside, you know, um, being emotionally fulfilled and getting your emotional needs met is really incredibly difficult. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. What, considering mindfulness and the theme of the show, which is get the funk out, what advice would you give to people who are in a funk? Well, uh, the first thing is to recognize that everything is ephemeral, including your emotions. So if you have the wherewithal to stay this too shall pass, mm-hmm. right? Then, then you, what you're doing is you're creating a distance between your core self and your emotions. And again, it's like the languaging is very important to me. Like if you can say to yourself, you know, um, either, oh, this is exactly what it's like when I'm spinning out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when my mind is spinning out, and you're creating a distance. Like the, the mindfulness is... is so difficult because what you're trying to do is get the mind to look at the mind. Right. Right? So we can't do that because, because you know, you just can't do that. Yeah. Uh, but what you can do is, and I always use that rabbit duck image, you know, when you that, if you look up on the internet rabbit duck, you'll see that image of, um, if you look at it one way, it's a rabbit. If you look at it another way, it's a duck. Mm-hmm. And F. Scott Fitzgerald said, um, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold bipolar thought in the mind at the same time and not go crazy. So for me, I, most people are not geniuses, and they cannot hold both the rabbit and duck in their mind at the same time. You, you look at the image, and it flickers between the two. Right. Now, what I say is that the rabbit is your breath. Mm-hmm. And the duck is your negative maladaptive thinking. So, so you cannot say, okay, I'm not going to think about the terrible traumas that happened to me. I'm not going to think about the violations. I'm not going to think about the betrayal and my failed marriage and this and that. You can't do that, right? Because you, you cannot tell what the mind not to think about. Right. But you can trick it into being present. Right. Because all of the traumas in your life happened in the past, and they don't exist. The only thing that exists are the stories about those traumas. Well, let me back up a second. One of the things I don't like when someone says to me is, this too shall pass. I mean, I've had some things that have happened. I've lost a friend in the past couple years, and it was very, very painful. And I remember sharing it with a family friend um, and even a relative of of my friend who died, and they, they just kind of dismissed it. And, you know... I think it's unhealthy to just quickly dismiss your feelings of sadness. Oh, I totally agree. And that's exactly the point I made before and in the DVD. We don't allow sufficient time to grieve in this culture. 
Right. And, and so when, when you're grieving, it's horrifying to say this too shall pass. But, but when you, but if you were grieving for 30 years yeah. and you're saying, you know, I, I, I should have become a doctor and then I went to had this terrible life, like you're grieving, you know, not becoming a doctor, right? right? So that's 30 years ago. It's a decision you made and you're upset about it now and you have to be on Wellbutrin to get to your job as a lawyer or whatever you're doing. You know, to me, um, those emotions uh, need to be reframed by your thoughts in some way. Exactly, you know? exactly. So. Uh, you know, I, wanted, I was sharing with you um, offline about an experience I had yesterday. Do you mind me interrupting for a second? Go right ahead. Okay, one of the... A great piece of advice, I would say, which has helped me throughout the years, is to find something, if you're in a funk, find something that makes you happy, something you've always wanted to do. You, someone might have said, you're not a good singer. You're never going to sing. Or, you know, you don't have the best voice, you know, whether it's public speaking. Or do something that you never imagined you could do. Uh, you've always dreamed of doing, and it nags at you. Um, something that intrigues you. Because... I did something yesterday, which I'm still beaming about. I did motion capture. And for those of you who don't know, uh, if you watch a movie like Avatar or um, Mars Needs Moms, th these are all uh, actors wearing these um, high-tech suits that have sensors on them. And there's like 50 cameras in this huge sound studio picking up their movements. And, and it's acting, and then it's technology, and it's just an amazing thing. And I've always been intrigued by it, and I heard about it through the Screen Actors Guild, and I signed up for it, and it was amazing. I mean, I got up at 6 a.m., and we were all so pumped. It was 20 of us, and we were doing all these crazy improv exercises, which are very cathartic. You don't care what people think if you're acting like a Looney Tune. I mean, so what, you know? And it's, it was just an amazing experience. So my point is, find something that you've always wanted to do because, boy, it really boosts your self-esteem, really makes you feel good, and it's a growing experience. Totally agree. It's funny because we have a comfort zone, and it's statistically or scientifically proven that doing something new every day, you know, going just slightly outside of your comfort zone, whatever it is, taking a new way to work even, like mm -hmm. really um, it increases your sense of wonder and you see new things and you realize that like you can, you can get out of your own paradigm and your own way of seeing the world which to me is causing the funk. I mean, I, yes. I go into this whole thing about you talking about Schrodinger's cat and how the um, observer influences the phenomenon, the experience. So, um, you know, I always show the, the glass is half empty or half full, depending on, on um, you know, the way you choose to look at it. So the, to talk about getting people out of funk, the first thing to do is the cognitive behavioral um, exercise of writing a gratitude list. Because the fact is that, you know, we're alive, which mm -hmm. is an amazing thing in itself, you know, yes. at, at, that yeah. we've made it this long. I mean, the average lifespan uh, 600 years ago was 27 years old, I know. Unless wow. we're, we're in our 40s, you know, we have houses and kids and, you know, we get to go to the movies. We have iPhones. Like, our lives are so so full of abundance that, I mean, just think about trying to explain to your grandparents what a mango was, you know, before, <laughs> you know, like, and like they didn't, they, you know, that was something like on the other side of the world. I can walk to two Whole Foods within 10 minutes and see fruits from 
Peru, Venezuela, Hawaii, Thailand, right. and I can buy them, and they're delicious. I mean, yes. the amount of um, abundance that that our culture, that our generation is currently experiencing, is unprecedented. So, one of the things to um, get out of funks is to just just learn how to appreciate that. Just think about. Um, you know, there's 3 billion people in the world who will go to bed hungry tonight. They mm-hmm. live on 1.2, they live on one and a dollar and a quarter per day. That's what they live on. Mm-hmm. They've never seen a cell phone. And like, we're part of the 4 billion people that, you know, we have, we have cars and scooters and, and uh, refrigerators that, I mean, I go to friends' houses and I look in their refrigerators and you could feed a small country on, on the things that go bad in their refrigerators. That's right. And, uh, you know, we just go into a store and pop down a credit card and, and buy all this stuff, whereas, you know, 150 years ago, you'd have to, like, go 20 miles <laughs> to, 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 to the local farm to get your three eggs. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, it's astonishing that what our culture and what our um, country and our society has produced technologically in the past 200 years since, uh, since the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. So let me ask you, would you say one of the key things for getting out of a funk, because I think this has helped me a bit, would be simplicity and some quiet time away from all the technology and just kind of unplug yourself? Right. Mm-hmm. So, for, so the key tool of mindfulness is meditation. And so, as I said, focusing on the breath, sitting up straight, having your shoulders um, right over your hips, your chin level, you, you relax the uh, flesh off of your cheekbones, your jaws unclenched, and you focus on the breath. And what you're trying to do is disidentify with your thoughts. Because mm-hmm. in my way of seeing the world, it's your thoughts that are causing your funk. And if you can mm-hmm. just get a respite from them, like allow your thoughts to go to Cancun on spring break for those five minutes while you sit there and tune into your core self, your authentic self, your higher power, whatever you think is the watcher of your thoughts. And you can just observe them like passing clouds in the sky. They're going to come into your head, but not feed into them emotionally. If you can create that distance between the watcher, and then the thoughts and emotions that go through your mind screen, then, you know, you have the ability to be non-reactive and not feed into them. Because, you you know, you are going to get cut off on the highway today, and you have the choice whether to escalate it and catch up to the guy and give him the bird, or you can just say, I was cut off on the highway, you know, I was triggered, I had a little bit of uh, shame or anger or some emotion come up, and I let it go. Sure. You know? And so these are just you're cultivating your ability to make healthy, long-term decisions on how you want to live your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. How you react to things, how you process things. I agree. Exactly. I agree. Well, we have about a little less than 10 minutes. I want to get into any other tips you might want to share with the listeners. Um, well, the first thing is always cultivating... Um, Non-reactivity, because um, I didn't do the exercise on this program because it's really difficult through uh, audio, but um, there's certain exercises that, uh, that I use to show participants in the workshops that their thoughts, feelings, and actions are, are not their best friends. Um, you know, we get um, lulled into thinking, you know, uh, I am 
Ira Israel, and I am wearing this sweatshirt, and my hair is long, and you get, you, you know, that's your sense of identity. But um, if you're able to release that for a little bit, you know, again, you can make healthier long-term decisions. And yes. then just the, the greatest immediate tool for me is learning how to replace resentment, and resentment is things that you think should be otherwise. Learning how to replace resentment with gratitude. So instead of saying, oh, I should have married this person instead of this person, you say, you know what, I have a life partner. <laughs> My yeah. mind tells me he might not be the best sometimes, <laughs> but I'm grateful that he's stuck around for all these years. Yeah, and who's perfect? I mean, exactly. you know, <laughs> and you might want to look in the mirror and say, I'm not perfect either. Exactly. <laughs> you know, where can people find out more about workshops you might be having coming up? Or um, There's two coming up in... Um, Santa Monica in August. Uh, the the website is called um, BeRealGoDeepLoveHard.com. Say that again? It's called Be Real okay. um, because I, I want people to be authentic. Go yes. deep because I want people to go past that superficial level of thought. And then LoveHard.com because I want people to really learn how to give without expecting things in return. So it's just like you have to just be able to show up for people and be vulnerable. And, and you know, you, if you have expectations that, oh, well, you know, I bought you an ice cream, so you have to buy me an ice cream, or I said I love you, so, you know, you just have to learn how to love as, as deeply as possible yes. without expecting it in return. Unconditionally. Just, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, nope, that's it. Well, I really appreciate you joining us, Ira. Thank you very much, Nina. It's been yeah, lovely. It's been uh, very, very interesting. And again, mindfulness, I, I would think that would be a key thing people should really take away from the show. And uh, be sure to check out Ira's information online. And thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. Up next, Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues. And I'll see you back here next Monday at 9 o'clock on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, broadcasting out of Irvine, California, giving you the relaxation you deserve. As a parent, you can't help but look at your child and wonder what the future holds. You may dream about the possibility of your son or daughter becoming a professional athlete or a renowned heart surgeon. But while you're dreaming, consider this. The odds that your child will be diagnosed with autism are 1 in 166. Knowing the signs of autism and catching it early could make a world of difference to your child and to you. To learn the signs, visit AutismSpeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.